37, why bad relapse, resulting in lung fever and complete prostration, was on my bed two months, and when I did get out, the strength to walk any more than just a few rods did not come back. My family doctor and two prominent physicians of Sioux City, did me no good. Late in the fall I got a bottle of Drive Pierce's Golden Medical Discovery, which quieted my trembling nerves and gave me an appetite to eat. I then concluded to try the doctor, personally. Up to this time I was in a pitiable condition. Sometimes I could not sleep until I felt almost wild, then sleep so much I would be stupefied. I could not digest any food and my whole system was wasting and failing fast. I doubt if anyone who saw me expected me to get well. I took the treatment sent me by the World's Dispensary Medical Association for more than a year. The medicine never gave me any distress as other medicines had done before. I began to improve from the start, but the change from one extreme to the other was like the growth of a child. To anyone suffering from nervous prostration I would say, don't be impatient. It takes a long time for weakened nerves to grow strong. I have at last become strong and well. Thanks to the giver of all good and the grand institution at Buffalo, I gave since married a noble heart young woman, and when I am playing with our sweet, healthy, baby girl, I give way to the thought that at last the long, bad chapter of my life is ended, at such times her merry laugh sounds like a song of triumph of life over death. Gratefully yours, W.S. Nicholson, Willow Creek, Clay Company, Iowa, Diseases of the Heart. Diseases of the heart are classified as either functional or organic we shall dwell only briefly upon purely functional derangements of the heart, as increased, or excited action, defective, or enfeebled action, and irregular action, increased action of the heart, indicated by palpitation, or increased number of the beats, may be caused mechanically, as by distentyon of the stomach, which, by preventing the descent of the diaphragm, excites the action of this organ or it may be a sympathetic disturbance produced through the nervous system, thus the emotions and passions may suddenly arouse the heart to excessive action, or the presence of worms in the intestines, improper food, and masturbation, may be the cause, the use of tea, tobacco, and alcoholic drinks excites the heart, we have found that the excessive use of tobacco is very frequently the cause of functional derangement of this organ, deficiency of the blood, as in anemia, may be the cause of palpitation of the heart. Functional disturbance of the heart's action is manifested by palpitation, irregularity, intermissions, a rolling or tumbling movement, and a feeling as if the heart were in the throat. These symptoms often give rise to great apprehension, anxiety, fear, and depression of mind. Treatment. The curative treatment of functional derangement of the heart must have reference to the causes producing it, if it is in consequence of indigestion. The appetite and digestion should be improved by observing regularity in the time of taking the meals, and eating very easily digested food. The use of strong tea, coffee, tobacco, and spirits, should be interdicted, and regular exercise, rest, and sleep should be enjoyed. In all cases, the domestic management should include daily bathing, exercise in the open air, regular habits, and the avoidance of all causes which tend to excite the heart's irregularity. The remedial treatment of these functional affections ought to be confided to some experienced physician, as the remedies are not within the ordinary reach of all families, nor if they were, would they have sufficient experience and knowledge to select and properly administer them. Organic disease of the heart. By organic disease we mean disease pertaining to the structure of the heart itself. In contradistinction to functional disease, 
which has reference nearly to the action of the heart. The heart is subject to various organic diseases, but we have only space to consider, in the briefest manner, those which are the most common. It is essential that the reader should have some knowledge of the anatomy and functions of the various parts of the heart in order that its diseases and their effects may be comprehended, therefore the anatomy and physiology of this organ, given in Part I Chapter VII, of this work, should be carefully studied. It is very evident that any disease which affects the structure and function of any part of the heart must, necessarily, give rise to certain modifications of the pulse, sounds, etc. It is through the observation and study of these modifications and changes that we arrive at a correct diagnosis as to the precise location and character of the disease. Until within comparatively recent years, physicians were very much in the dark regarding diseases of the heart. Now, however, with a thorough knowledge of the anatomy, physiology, and pathology of the heart and the parts surrounding it, and with the aid of instruments which modern ingenuity has given us, we are able to diagnosticate with precision the slightest lesions of any part of this important organ, and, knowing their nature, to map out an appropriate course of treatment, with the aid of the stethoscope, invented by Lamy and improved upon by Kamen, we are able to distinguish the slightest deviation from the normal sounds, and, by noting the character of the sound, the time when it occurs, the area over which it is heard most distinctly, and the direction in which it is transmitted, to locate the lesion which produces it, by the aid of the sphygmograph, first invented by Harrison, and afterward improved upon by Ludwig, Gerard, Mary, and lastly by Pond, of our own country, the pulsations at the wrist are registered, and thus made perceptible to the eye, we herewith give a cut, figure 1, of Pond's instrument, and two tracings made by it, the first is a healthy tracing, and the second indicates enlargement, technically called hypertrophy, of the heart PRICARDIDIS, or inflammation of the membranous sac which surrounds the heart, may be either acute or chronic. The symptoms in acute pericarditis are made up from company existing affections, and are frequently associated with articular rheumatism. Bright's disease of the kidneys, or pleurides the intensity of the pain varies in different individuals. The action of the heart is increased, the pulse is quick, and vomiting sometimes takes place. When this disease is developed in the course of rheumatism, it is known as rheumatic pericarditis, and is almost always associated with endocarditis. In some cases acute pericarditis is very distressing, in others it is mild. The fatality is not due so much to the disease itself, as to company existing affections. When it does not prove fatal, it sometimes becomes chronic. In chronic pericarditis, pain is seldom present. The heart is generally more or less enlarged. Its sounds are feeble, the first being weaker than the second, the endocardiitis, or inflammation of the membrane lining the cavities of the heart, is one of the most frequent forms of heart disease. It is almost invariably associated with acute rheumatism, or some of the eruptive fevers, as smallpox, scarlet fever, etc. and is due to the irritation of the unhealthy blood passing through the heart. The disease is generally attended with little or no pain, and, consequently, if the attending physician be not on the alert, it will escape his observation. When associated with acute rheumatism, the disease is only in rare instances directly fatal, but in the great majority of cases it leaves permanent organic changes, which sooner or later develop into valvular affections, and these may eventually destroy life. When the disease occurs, however, 
as the result of chemia blood poisoning produced by the absorption of decomposing pus or matter, or of diphtheria, or when it is associated with any other septic conditions, it constitutes a very grave element. Collections of matter formed on the membrane lining the heart and covering its valves, are liable to be detached and carried by the circulation to the brain, spleen, or liver, where they plug up some artery, and thus cause death of the parts which it supplies with blood. Chronic endocarditis generally occurs in rheumatic subjects, and associated with any acute disease, it may exist without any marked symptoms, except, perhaps, a sense of oppression and uneasiness in the chest, with palpitation, it produces a thickening and hardening of the membrane lining the heart, and generally causes a retraction, adhesion, and degeneration of some of the valves of the heart, thus bringing on valvular disease, VALVULAR lesions are, as we have seen, very frequently the result of endocarditis. They are of two kinds. First, those which prevent the valves from flapping back close to the walls of the ventricles, or arteries, thus diminishing, to a greater or lesser extent, the size of the valvular orifices, and offering an obstruction to the free flow of blood through them, and which consist of a thickening and retraction, or adhesion of the valves, chalky deposits, morbid growths, etc. Secondly, those which prevent complete closure of the valves, and thus permit a return of the blood into the cavity from which it has just been expelled. These latter consist of retractions, perforations, and partial detachments of the valves, chalky deposits around the base of the valves and in them, and rupture of the cordy tendini. These two forms of lesions are usually company existent, one generally being more extensive than the other. Thus, the regurgitation may be slight, and the obstruction great or vice versa, the symptoms and disturbance of the circulation are altogether dependent upon the location and form of the lesion, or lesions, each valvular lesion has its characteristic sound, or murmur, which is heard at a particular period in the cycle of the heart's action, and it island as before stated, from these sounds, from tracings of the pulse, and from the many other indications, that we arrive at a diagnosis, thus, in obstruction of the orifice at the junction of the aorta with the left ventricle, one of the most frequent of valvular lesions, a murmur, generally harsh in character, is heard with the first sound of the heart, with greatest intensity directly over the normal position or the aortic semilunar valves, this is conveyed along the large arteries, and may be heard, less distinctly, over the carotids, in the sphygmographic tracing, the line of ascent is less abrupt than in the normal tracing figure 2 and not nearly so high, and it is rounded at the top, in aortic regurgitation, the line of ascent is similar to that of the healthy tracing, but the line of descent is very sudden, the left side of the heart is almost invariably the primary seat of these affections, but in the latter stages of their course, the right side also is liable to become involved, and, as a consequence, there then exists great disturbance of the venous circulation, with a damming back of the blood in the veins, and passive congestion of the liver, kidneys and brain, followed by dropsy, albumin in the urine, etc. Hypertrophy of the heart consists of a thickening of the muscular walls of this organ. It may be confined to a one portion of the heart, or it may affect the entire organ. The affection has been divided into the following three forms, simple hypertrophy, in which there is an increase in the thickness of the walls of the heart, without any augmentation in the capacity of the cavities and which is usually the result of chronic Bright's disease, or great intemperance, eccentric hypertrophy, in which there is an increase in the thickness of the walls of the heart, together with increase in the capacity of the cavities, 
and which is generally the result of some valvular lesion, and concentric hypertrophy, in which there is an increase in the thickness of the walls of the heart, with a decrease in the capacity of the cavities, valvular lesions, obstructions in the large arteries, or, in fact, anything which calls upon the heart to constantly perform an undue amount of labor must, necessarily, produce hypertrophy of its muscular walls, just as the undue amount of labor which the blacksmith's arm is called upon to perform produces hypertrophy of its muscles, with this condition, the pulse is hard and incompressible, and the line of ascent in the sphygmographic tracing figure 3 is higher than in health, dilatation of the heart is a condition which is closely allied to hypertrophy of the heart, and which consists of an increase in the capacity of the cavities of the heart, with diminished contractile power, in simple dilatation, there is an increase in the capacities of the cavities, without any marked change in the walls of the organ, it is usually the result of some disease which has produced great muscular prostration, and which has interfered materially with nutrition, more frequently, however, dilatation is the result of valvular lesions, and is associated with hypertrophy, there being an increase in the thickness of the walls with a diminution of the contractile power, the hypertrophy from valvular lesions goes on increasing until it reaches a certain stage, when dilatation commences, the two conditions then being associated, atrophy of the heart is the opposite to hypertrophy, and signifies a wasting away of the muscular substance, and a diminution in the thickness of the walls of the heart, its power is diminished in proportion to the degree of atrophy, fatty degeneration of the heart consists in the deposition of particles of fat within the sarcolum of the sheath which invests the fibrils, which are substituted for the proper muscular tissue, if the fatty degeneration exists to any extent the muscular walls present a yellowish color, and the heart is soft and flabby, this may be confined to a one ventricle, or it may affect the inner layer of fibers, the outer layer remaining unchanged, degeneration of the left ventricle occasions feebleness of the pulse, difficulty in breathing is one symptom of this disease, especially when the right ventricle is affected, there is pallor, feeble circulation, cold extremities, and frequently dropsy, fatty degeneration is more liable to occur in corpulent persons, and between the ages of 40 and 50 years, angina PCDORIs, also termed neuralgia of the heart, might be included among the diseases of the nervous system, but as it is usually associated with a derangement in the action of the heart, it may be properly considered in this connection, the pain varies in intensity, sometimes being very acute, that others assuming a milder form, the action of the heart is more or less disturbed, the beats are irregular, at times being strong, while again they are feeble, a feeling of numbness is experienced in those parts to which the pain penetrates, these paroxysms usually continue but a few minutes, although they sometimes last several hours, persons suffering from angina pectoris are liable to sudden death, it is connected with ossification, or other organic changes of the heart, usually these paroxysms, if the life of the patient continues, become more and more frequent, the danger is not to be measured by the intensity of the pain, but by the company existing organic disease, although it is not absolutely certain that organic disease is present in all cases of angina pectoris, yet the exceptions are so rare that when the signs of organic disease cannot be detected, it may be inferred that angina is not the real affection, or that the existing lesions escape observation, those who suffer from this disease are, in the great majority of cases, of the male sex, and rarely under the age of 40. Treatment. In the foregoing consideration of organic diseases of the heart, we have omitted to speak of their remedial management, 
for the obvious reason that unprofessional readers are unable to correctly distinguish between the various diseases of this vital organ, and it would, therefore, be useless for us to attempt to instruct them as to the medicinal treatment of the different cardiac affections. In the vast majority of instances, diseases of the heart are not necessarily fatally fatal. Persons have been known to live 20 years or more with very extensive organic disease of this organ. It is very important, however, that a correct diagnosis be made in the early stages of these diseases, in order that an appropriate course of hygiene and treatment may be adopted, which will check their progress. While we cannot cure extensive organic diseases of the heart, we can check their progress, and prolong life, and render the condition of the subject comparatively comfortable. Since we are able to diagnosticate with the utmost precision the various affections of the heart, and since the discovery of certain specific medicines which exert most beneficial effects, we are enabled to treat this class of maladies with the most gratifying results. Thus we have seen a case in a very advanced stage of the disease, with the breathing so difficult that the subject had been compelled to remain almost constantly in the sitting posture, in the greatest agony, for so long a time that immense bed sores had formed on the seat, in which the dropsy had become so extensive that the skin of the legs had burst open, and yet this patient, through the influence of a specific course of treatment, was fatally relieved, and enabled to live in a comparatively comfortable condition for many months. One afflicted with heart disease should abstain from the use of all kinds of stimulants, tobacco, and whatever tends to a lower vitality. His life should be an even one, free from all excitement of any kind whatsoever. He should avoid severe physical exertion, and everything which causes the heart to beat with a new frequency. There are certain symptoms, the result of chlorosis the green sickness, a deficiency of blood, dyspepsia, uterine disease, and certain nervous affections which may simulate those of real organic disease, but the physician of education and experience, with a trained ear, is able to detect the difference fatally. Sore mouth, stomatitis, stomatitis, or inflammation of the mucous membrane of the mouth, may include the entire surface of the gums, tongue, and cheeks, or appear only in spots. Vesicles are formed, having swollen edges and a white or yellow center, which finally ulcerate, when mild, the affection is confined to these parts, if the inflammation is acute, the mouth is dry and parched, or as is more frequently the case, the flow of saliva is abundant and acrid, and, when swallowed, irritates the stomach and bowels, producing fever, diarrhea, griping pains, and flatulency, the tongue is either coated white or red, and is glossy, and the sense of taste is considerably impaired, digestion and nutrition are then disturbed, and the patient becomes rapidly emaciated. Thrush, OR canker, is that form of stomatitis in which white ulcers locate on the inner side of the upper lip, the tongue, or roof of the mouth, the irritation which they cause not only interferes with eating, but produces fever, together with the symptoms previously mentioned, APDHA, or follicular inflammation, is distinguished by very painful little ulcers, single or in clusters, scattered over the surface of the tongue and lining of the mouth. Sometimes it is complicated with little lumps in the tongue. These form ulcers and denote scrofulous inflammation. Fissures and cracks in the tongue indicate derangement of the stomach. The causes of stomatitis, in nursing infants, are unhealthy milk, or a feet matter, which, for lack of proper care and cleanliness, accumulates upon the nipple. In older children, improper diet, irritants, debility of the digestive functions, or hereditary syphilitic taint disorder the blood and induce local inflammation, 
Treatment. Locally, use a wash of golden seal or gold thread sweetened with maple sugar, and rendered slightly alkaline with borax or saleratus. Also use a very weak, alkaline tea, or one of slippery elm flour, to obviate the acridity of the secretions. If the sores do not heal, constitutional treatment may be required, as the use of the golden medical discovery. The family physician should be consulted if the sore mouth resists all these remedial measures. Nursing Sore Mouth Stomatitis amediarinae. During the period of nursing, and sometimes in the latter months of pregnancy, women are liable to a peculiar variety of sore mouth. The soreness is sometimes so great that, although the appetite may be ravenous, the patient cannot eat. When this condition extends to the stomach and bowels, symptoms of a very grave character appear, and the disease, by interfering with the process of nutrition, causes emaciation and debility, and in extreme cases, death. It is a strange affection, nearly always disappearing upon weaning the child, though this course is not absolutely necessary, it appears to depend upon a hepatic, or gastric derangement, in connection with a vitiated condition of the blood, but how this is brought about is unknown. Symptoms, the disease sometimes comes on suddenly, at others more slowly. The fact that the woman is either pregnant or nursing, is of importance in forming a diagnosis. At first there is a severe, scalding sensation of the tongue, mouth, and fosses, with pain, which is sometimes intense. The color of the tongue is often pink, or a light red, while the mouth is generally of a deeper hue. The stinging, biting sensation is accompanied by a profuse, watery discharge from the mouth, which seems extremely hot and acrid causing excoriation whenever it comes in contract with the face or chin. The appetite is good, sometimes ravenous, but food or drinks, except of the blandest character, occasion such intense pain that the patient avoids their use. Ulceration occurs after a little time. The bowels are generally constipated, but when the disease extends to the stomach or intestines, diarrhea occurs. There is generally anemia, debility, and impairment of the vital powers. Treatment. The indications for treatment in this affection are to overcome the vitiated condition of the blood, and to sustain the vital powers. The remedies for this purpose are alteratives, antiseptics, and tonics. Give the golden medical discovery, the value of which may be greatly enhanced by adding one half ounce of the fluid extract of baptisia to each bottle, in doses of a teaspoonful four times a day. Chlorate of potash, half an ounce in a pint of water, used as a wash and gargle, is of great value. A teaspoonful of the same may be swallowed several times a day. This will not interfere with other medicines. As a tonic, the tincture of the muriate of iron, in 5 to 10 drop doses, diluted with water, may be taken 3 or 4 times daily. Quinine, in 1 or 2 gram doses, should be given with the iron if the debility be extreme. When there is great acidity of the stomach, which may be known by heartburn, salaratus may be taken in water, to neutralize it but should not be drunk within an hour of the time for taking other medicines. If constipation exists, use the pleasant pellets. This course of treatment, thoroughly carried out, will seldom fail to effect a perfect cure, without weaning the child. Yet this latter course may sometimes become advisable to promote the recovery of the patient. Should the treatment advised not produce the desired result, a skillful physician's services should be secured, as he may, in individual cases. Distinguish other important indications which may enable him to modify the treatment to advantage. Diarrhea, cholera INFA and EUM, OR summer complaint, and dysentery. These diseases are usually considered separately by medical writers but, 
as they are closely related, a simple diarrhea not infrequently running into a cholera infantum or a dysentery, we shall consider them together. Diarrhea is an affection characterized by unnaturally frequent evacuations from the bowels of a liquid of morbidly soft consistency. It may be simple or inflammatory, and acute or chronic. A diarrhea is said to be bilious when the discharges are composed principally of serum, highly colored with yellow or green bile, catarrhal, when they are of a semi-transparent, mucous character, serous, when the dejections are thin and watery, sometimes mixed with blood, bile, or ingested. The symptoms of the affection are usually at first those of indigestion, a fullness of the stomach, flatulency, and colicky pains. The pains, which precede each evacuation, are intermittent in character. There may be an unpleasant sinking sensation in the abdomen, and, with the discharge, exhaustion, a feeble pulse, and a cool skin. In the inflammatory variety, there is more or less fever, cholera infa and eum, or summer complaint is a disease peculiar to the warm season, and more prevalent in cities, and among those children who do not nurse at the breast, it is characterized by great irritability of the stomach, and persistent vomiting and purging, the discharges from the bowels being copious and watery, and sometimes containing specks of curd, yellowish-green matter, and mucus, the limbs of the little sufferer are usually drawn up, indicating pain in the bowels, and there is great prostration with cold extremities. The invasion may be so sudden, and the disease so violent as to destroy life in a few hours. Dysentery, also known as bloody flux, consists of an inflammation of the mucous membrane of the large intestine, with ulceration of the affected surfaces. The disease is accompanied with much nervous prostration, and is distinguished by severe pains in the abdomen of a griping nature, followed by frequent scanty and bloody stools, and much straining. Occasionally the attack is ushered in with a chill and aching pains in various parts of the body, with copious fecal dejections. In other cases the attack is preceded by loss of appetite, a sense of uneasiness with dull pains in the abdomen, and weariness. The disease, like diarrhea, may be either acute or chronic. The causes of these affections of the bowels are many and varied. They may be brought on by exposure to cold and wet, or by improper and indigestible articles of food, such as unripe fruits solids, pastries, and, in fact, anything which interferes with the normal operations of the digestive apparatus, one of the most fertile sources of diarrhea in infants, and of cholera infantum, is the administration of unsuitable food, the ill effects of which are greatly increased by exposure to heat or cold, and cleanliness, and the inhalation of impure air, are prolific causes of these diseases, epidemics have been supposed to be due to some peculiarity in the condition of the atmosphere or to some impalpable germ of a vegetable or animal nature. Treatment. In the treatment of these diseases, one should first endeavor to ascertain the cause of the trouble, and then, if possible, effect its removal. Attention should be given to the hygienic surroundings of the individual afflicted, if he reside in a miasmatic district, or in a location in which the atmosphere is contaminated by the decomposition of animal or vegetable matter, or filled with noxious gases, his abode should be changed, appear. Dry air is most beneficial in these cases, only the least irritating and most easily digestible articles of food should be taken. Healthy cow's milk is slightly alkaline, but that of cows fed on slots is usually acid, and in fit for infants, it island therefore, well to test all milk with blue litmus paper before feeding it to young children, if found to be strongly acid, that is if it turns the paper red, it should be rejected, but if only slightly so, 
sufficient lime water may be added to render it slightly alkaline. For adults and older children, the diet should consist of such starchy foods as arrowroot, sago, cornstarch, and rice, and of ripe grapes, freed from the skins and seeds, peaches, and boiled milk, or milk and lime water. In some cases the animal broths are beneficial, especially mutton broth, to quench the thirst, crust coffee, rice coffee, and lemonade, in small quantities, may be taken. Rest is important in these diseases. In severe cases, the patient should be kept in bed, at the onset of an attack of diarrhea or dysentery. If there be reason to believe that the intestinal tract contains irritating matter, a dose of castor oil, with a few drops of anise oil added to render it palatable, should be administered. After all irritating ingesta have been removed, Dr. Pierce's compound extract of smart wheat should be given in doses proportionate to the age of the patient, and the severity of the case, being composed of the extract of smart wheat, or water pepper, Jamaica ginger, camphor, and genuine French grape brandy. It exerts a most wonderful effect not only in those diseases but in cholera morbus and intestinal colic. It allays the irritation and inflammation of the affected mucous surfaces, and suits the nervous system. In the great majority of cases, the above course of treatment will be found sufficient, but in the more severe forms of these diseases additional remedies may be required. In dysentery, accompanied with severe pain and straining, injections of starch water and laudanum, from 2 to 4 ounces of the former to from 20 to 50 drops of the latter should be used. Hot fomentations applied to the abdomen are beneficial. If the discharges contain much blood, a flannel cloth moistened with the spirits of turpentine should be laid over the lower part of the abdomen, and kept there until slight irritation is produced. Lime water, bicarbonate of soda, bicarbonate of potash salaratus, chalk, and the subnitrate of bismuth are valuable agents to correct the secretions and allay irritation of the diseased mucous surface. The above-named preparations of soda, potash, and bismuth may be taken in doses of from 5 to 20 grains every few hours. Blackberry root and cranes build geranium maculatum, in the form of fluid extract or infusion, are beneficial in acute cases in which the discharges are profuse and watery, and in the chronic forms of these affections. In cholera infantum subnitrate of bismuth should be given in doses of from 5 to 10 grains at intervals of from 2 to 4 hours. If the discharges are very profuse, the fluid extract of cranes bill may be administered in from 2 to 10 drop doses alternately with the bismuth. The cantharated tincture of opium paragoric is required in doses of from 2 to 20 drops, depending upon the age of the child and the severity of the case. If there is much pain, but great caution should be exercised in administering the preparations of opium to children. A single drop of laudanum given to a young infant has caused convulsions, coma, and death in more than one instance. To check the vomiting of cholera infantum, mild irritation over the stomach is sometimes effectual. For this purpose a weak mustard plus, 